HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Welcome to What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper. And today we are going to be talking about the Department of Labor, Eugene Scalia and um, OSHA, uh, with regards to the meatpacking industry. My guest today is the excellent Tom Philpot, uh, who has been a guest on this show many, many times in the past. Um, he is Mother Jones's, in case you're listening to him for the first time, he's their food and agricultural correspondent and is a co-host of um, Mother Jones's Bite podcast. Uh, Tom's writing on food politics has appeared in numerous publications. He is currently based in Austin, Texas. In 2015, he won a well-deserved Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism in the feature category for the story, California Goes Nuts, along with photographer Matt Black. And in 2014, Phil Potts' Mother Jones blog, Food for Thought, was named Best Food Blog by the Association of Food Journalists. He has a new book coming out later this month. It is called Perilous Bounty, and we'll be talking about that just a little bit as well. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but in the meantime, Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to hear your voice. It is so good to be back, Katie. Thank you so much. 
How have you? How's it going down in Texas, by the way? Well, you know, I right now I'm actually in North Carolina. Um, oh, good. I am in Winston Salem. Um, we are currently being lashed by a hurricane. Uh, yes. But, but so far, it's not been so bad. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Um, going through the, you know, the, the pleasure, one might say, of releasing a book during all this, because um, I think I would be like ragged on the road right now otherwise. But um, it's kind of nice to be holed up in, in Winston-Salem. I'm glad uh, you're right now. Um, you know, besides the horrible pandemic that's going on and just the completely failed government response to it, um, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm glad. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. I'm excited to read the book. So you must, uh, after the show, send me or give me your publicist's information so I can request a copy. Definitely. And then you can come back for that. So um, we were going to talk about the meatpacking industry, one of my favorite subjects, as you know. Um, and um, as usual, the industry is leading the way in their exploitative and immoral behavior towards their workforce. So in your recent article in Mother Jones, uh, you outlined the role of the Secretary of Labor, Eugene Scalia, who has essentially... Um, you know, managed to gut any safety response to the pandemic in the meat industry. So um, tell us how he's managed to do that, what his, you know, strategy has been. Yeah, so he's the Secretary of Labor, and the Labor Department, um, you know, is, is the department that houses OSHA, which is um, charged with making sure that workplaces are safe. A, you know, very, very important task. Yeah. Um, that, you know, has really, you know, the fact that we have an OSHA comes from, you know, decades and decades of working class struggle, decades and decades of high injury rates of, you know, sort of unregulated capitalism yes. in the workplace, you know, just sort of consuming people's bodies. And, um, and so in 1970, um, we got something called OSHA. And um, it's, it's supposed to regulate safety in the workplace. And when there's a crisis like this, it really has the task of making sure that every worker from, you know, sort of journalist types like us who are, you know, basically able to shelter in place to people that are considered essential workers, everyone has to have a safe workplace. And, um, you know, and basically what Scalia has done is he has just sort of accepted the designation of meatpacking workers as essential and then declined to put in any special actual regulations. Um, you know, for example, I think, so what, what, when you talk to people who, who cover this topic and cover workplace safety, what, what they would like for, for, the, for OSHA to have done is um, release what's called an emergency temporary standard. And that standard could have said, okay, you have got to make sure that all of your workers are, at all times are able to maintain six feet of distance. Um, obviously, you have to give protective gear like masks, um, but you've got to make sure that people are able to maintain six feet of distance. And, um, and Scalia has you know, vigorously um, opposed doing that, refused to do it. And what OSHA has uh, done instead is uh, released... Um, voluntary guidelines that say, if possible, keep six feet of distance. Mm -hmm. And so what the companies are able to do is say, well, you know, we're a necessary, you know, our 
industry is necessary. We have to keep churning at meat as, you know, the, as high level as possible. And therefore, we can't always make sure, in fact, we can really never make sure that a substantial <laughs> number of our workers are able to keep distance. And I think that has been at the root of these places, just, you know, just being literal hotbeds of COVID-19 and also hotbeds of spreading it into communities. That's right. Yeah. I, I have been um, following with Leah Douglas, who's been running a wonderful um, spreadsheet on the number of cases contracted outside of the meatpacking uh, facilities, but inside the community where where people who work in those facilities actually live. And it has been a, it has been an eye opener, to say the very least. I yeah. Mean, last time I checked from Leah's work, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think counties that have meatpacking plants were having infection rates at around five times higher that's right. In similar counties without meatpacking plants. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah, that's pretty awful. staggering. And I've got to say, where I am in North Carolina right now is in Winston-Salem, and so mm-hmm. which is in Forsyth County. Yeah. And we're one county over from Wilkes, uh, which Wilkes County, which has a giant Tyson plant ah. um, that has had um, very, very high numbers of infections. And you know, basically Wilkes County and my county, Forsyth, we've both seen our rates skyrocket um, based on, you know, pretty clearly based on proximity to this Tyson plant. And then going, so that's west of us. And then you go, you know, two counties east of us, and there's another giant poultry plant over there. And so, you know, when you're in those places, you know, you are, you know, your safety is in the hands of those companies and um, they're completely failing us. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just uh, and then well I, I, we could go on and on about North Carolina because I've done a lot of programming around their water quality issues and you're telling me that you're having another hurricane, um, which we're going to see sort of here in Rhode Island, but I don't think it'll be anything like what you get. Um, but that is a, you know traditionally that is a huge problem whenever a storm surge comes up uh, the Atlantic coast uh, on North Carolina you get those big floods that inundate your uh, packing plants, the, all the pork processing oh, yeah. pork facilities and everything. I mean, it's just a, literally a shit show. Yeah. Um, so those giant, you know, uh, what do they call them? Yeah. Manure lagoons yeah. Um, become inundated and just, you know, carry this stuff. And, sp- um, and spread all over the the, oh, yeah. you know, the land and also into the waterways. But anyway, let's go back to uh, meatpacking because one of the things that's so um, telling about Scalia and his history um, in labor, not necessarily as the Secretary of Labor, but in other um, various uh, roles that he has played. Um, he, uh, there, there was a, at one time back in the 90s, there was a lot of interest in the science of ergonomics. And we should like backpedal for a second and just say that one of the reasons why OSHA's failure uh, to protect people is not just that it's almost impossible to separate workers by six feet, but workers are always um, subject to what are called repetitive trauma because Mm. you're basically performing the same exact uh, motion literally hundreds of times a minute. If you think uh, if, if it's 145 birds per minute, or I think it's now 175 in a lot of plants, 175 times a minute, you're making one particular uh, motion. And that results in a lot of, of, you know, physical, musculoskeletal issues. So back in the 90s, that was all to say this, to get to the next question, there was a lot of interest in the science of ergonomics, also known as the, this, this 
interest was also known as the ergonomics program standard in trying to minimize some of those uh, some of the damage from that. What what happened? You know, tell us a little bit about the history of that ergonomics program standard. Yes. And what happened to that? Because that was such a step in the right direction and it just literally disappeared. Yes, and it was all about Scalia himself, who right. we, we should we should emphasize in case you're wondering. This is the son is. of the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Yeah. Okay, so with that out of the way, um, yeah. So you're very you're, you're very right that in the '90s it was becoming clear that repetitive stress injuries were a real problem. And you know, I think that you know people who don't work blue collar jobs can remember um, all of the worry about. Um, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome from typing too much. And so, you know, we saw a lot of things like uh, for white collar workers, we saw a lot of things like keyboard structure to keep you from, you know, you know, stressing joints in a certain way that was going to give you carpal tunnel or some other injury. Um, There was some effort put into it. Um, And OSHA had been um, noticing that there were pretty high rates in the meatpacking industry and it was one of the areas of concern, and it was actually working with the meatpacking industry and and making some progress. And so, you know, in the '90s, um, OSHA said, "Okay, let's come up with, but you know, let's get as much good research as we can and come up with a plan that we'll call the ergonomic standard that will be for all workplaces." Um, and you know, they they knew that there were some workplaces that it was going to you know make more of a dent than others. And, um, and it was actually pretty simple. It was, um, you know, the, the, if you are, you know, if you run a, um, a plant, a factory, a facility that causes where, where there's lots of complaints from workers about it. And so, you, you know, first of all, you listen to your workers, you find out you know, what their problems are. Um, and then you figure out, you put resources into figuring out, you know, what are the, the activities on the job that, that cause this? And what kind of modifications could you make to, um, to reduce it? Um, a perfect example would be, you know, let's restructure a keyboard and see if a different kind of keyboard, um, you know, if you're an, an office worker, let's see if that uh, makes things better for you. And there would be similar things uh, for meatpacking workers. I was talking to um, Debbie Berkowitz, who um, is a source for the story. She works at the National Employment Law Program. Mm-hmm. And she worked at OSHA in the 90s. Um, no, I'm sorry. She worked at, uh, at OSHA during the 2000s uh, and then under Obama. Um, in the 90s, she, um, 2000, you know, 2000s into 2010s. But in the 90s, she was uh, working as a lawyer for, for a union and was very interested on the worker safety side of this question. And she said that there were things that you could do, like you could de- design a knife in a slightly different way. So it would cause, you know, you'd have to fabricate a bunch of uh, specially designed knives mm-hmm. that would um, keep workers from bending their wrists in a certain way that would protect their joints, protect them from carpal tunnel. There were things like this you could have done. Um, wow. And a, a, an ergonomic standard would have forced, would have forced it. Um, you know, something else um, that I think is very important is that the industry, as you know well, Katie, was um, in the process of constantly speeding up the line. The more yeah. you can produce, the more sort of pork chops or chicken wings you can produce in a shorter amount of time, the more profit there is. Right. And so there was a um, heavy pressure from the industry to speed up the line. 
And an ergonomic standard would have, would have slowed that down. Um, I'm sorry, you can't speed the lineup um, over a certain rate because it's clearly causing um, ergonomic problems. Um, and so, you know, the, the rulemaking process, um, so OSHA spends a big chunk of the 90s of President Clinton's term coming up with, rule, with these rules uh, sending them out to, uh, for comment, getting scientific uh, feedback, going through this whole process. And the industry, and not just the meatpacking industry, but a lot of different manufacturing industries get together and they go batshit crazy. Can I say that? Yes. Okay. They, um, they, <clears throat> they go nuts. They, they push back hard. And so they are figuring out, okay, how are we going to fight this? Because this is going to slow things down for us. And they go shopping for lawyers and they find one at a, a very well-connected lawyer at a hotshot, you know, DC lobbying firm named uh, Eugene Scalia. Yeah. And they pay him, you know, lots and lots of money and they just basically say, go fight this thing. And so Scalia spends most of the 90s just in this jihad against this bill. He is lobbying furiously against it. He is running op-eds in, you know, whatever little, you know, whoever will run him, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, saying yeah. that this is going to be a disaster. It's a plot by the unions. Um, it's uh, ergonomic science, which is actually very rigorous. Um, it's, it's junk science. Um, yeah. So he's running this, um, this campaign. And so meanwhile, you've got the, you know, you've got the Gingrich revolution, uh, in Congress. So Gingrich takes over as uh, Speaker of the House in 94, brings this really right-wing agenda. And so they spent a whole lot of the 90s um, putting writers on bills to stop OSHA from releasing these rules. And if that wow. sounds familiar to your listeners, I bet you guys have discussed the, um, oh, what is the rule, Katie, in uh, for... Um, uh, poultry farmers, where they, you know, the uh, the gypsum rules. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We've I bet you discuss gypsum rules <laughs> in the show because I know what yeah. a, I, yeah. I know how you roll. And um, so <laughs> Obama um, spends a bunch of his term, um, you know, making efforts to roll out rules to protect poultry farmers, a whole different part of the industry. And Congress does, does the same thing. They put in these riders that on um, just, you know, uh, basically budget bills that stop OSHA from putting these, um, these rules into place. Well, they use the same playbook. So Scalia and his allies in Congress, they, um, they spent most, they spent a, a huge chunk of the nineties, um, you know, stopping these rules from happening, crying, I don't know, communism, you know, union takeover of OSHA or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and so that, that was his role. He was really sort of the intellectual godfather of the fight to stop OSHA from uh, directly regulating um, these rules. And um, so, you know, the 2000 election happens. Everyone remembers just the disaster, the sort of hanging chads and, you know, the inconclusive sure. result that drags on and on. Um, so in the middle of that, Clinton's OSHA says, screw it. Um, we're, we're a lame duck anyway. We're going to go ahead and implement these rules. So they issued their final rule in the lame duck period. Um, meanwhile, 
Uh, Scalia's father cast a decisive vote in Bush v. Bush v. Gore, making Bush president. And I think that the historical record shows that um, that never should have happened. It was a terrible decision. Um, Antonin Scalia was later on record saying it was a junk. You know, it was the the argument for it was junk. Um, wow. He should not have won the presidency. Um, but so Bush becomes president. And so now we can come to the, I think your next question is going to be about uh, what happens next. But there was this moment in, um, in 2000 after the election when we had an ergonomic standard. It was the law of the land. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up um, was I'm going to actually pass over the language that forbids any rule change that has any similarity to the one that already existed because I know that's what you're <laughs> talking about. But Scalia's efforts to change the language from repeated trauma, quote unquote, repeated trauma, to all other occupational injuries as kind of a catch-all for anything that could happen to you while you're working on the, on the you know, poultry line or the pig line or whatever, and how the industry has used that to disguise and reduce uh, injury reports in their industry. Right. I just wanted to talk about that for a second, because that's such an important aspect of this whole, um, you know, sad story that we're telling today. Okay, so right. Um, so um, meanwhile, while this ergonomic standard is going on, OSHA has a system for calculating injury rates. You can find the injury rate for any, any industry because OSHA does right. these um, these. It, um, it, it requires employers to submit information on, um, on injuries that happen in the workplace. And um, in the 2000s, there was a column that, you know, you would fill out as part of your paperwork that included repetitive stress. Um, and what they decided to do was, for various reasons that I think were legit, they decided to change it to mus- musculoskeletal injuries Ah. Um, and so when someone had um, a musculoskeletal injury, um, uh, you know, on the job, whether it was they fell and broke their leg or they, um, they got carpal tunnel syndrome, that was supposed to be recorded. Now, we, there's debate among um, labor advocates about whether that switch in the first place should have been made. Um, but that was the switch that was made. And, um, and so... It goes into this, you know, Byzantine process of federal rulemaking and it's, you know, it's making its way through the agency. And then Scalia, I mean, I guess we should jump ahead on the story just real briefly and say that Bush yeah. overturned, you know, Bush and Congress rallied together. So now after the 2000 election, you've got a unified Republican leadership right. in Congress and you got President Bush and they got together and voted down this, these OSHA rules using a, um, a, a mechanism that, um, that Mr. Gingrich had come up with, where within the first 90 days of an administration, um, Congress and the president can eliminate rules that were made. When that 90-day period uh, is up, you can't do it anymore. And it was specifically to, you know, what if we have a, a president for eight years like Clinton? What, you know, what all can we... Um, can we make go away? And actually, um, it was used to kill these uh, uh, ergonomic rules, and it was not used again until President Trump uh, used uh-huh. it a few times to uh, undo some Obama-era regulations. But anyway, so um, at, so first Bush does this. He he kills you know he he kills these rules um, after being lobbied vigorously by Scalia. 
Then he appoints Scalia labor solicitor, which is a top legal um, office in the labor department. He's like the sort of consigliere to the labor um, secretary, who was Elaine Chow, who I believe is married to Mitch McConnell. If I'm not Why, yes. Why, yes, he is. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, and so, while Scalia is there, and I should say he was only there for one year, so he got this nice credential on his um, his resume that he was labor solicitor for one year, even after leading this jihad against the um, ergonomic <laughs> rule. And so, while he's there, this um, designation of musculoskeletal mus- injury is being floated, and it's be- going to become the law of the land. And meanwhile, his old law firm that he had been from is vigorously arguing and lobbying the Department of Labor to just nix it. Just don't do musculoskeletal, don't do repetitive stress, just nix that category and it'll be under just a broad category of injury. You know, right. it's just making, un, you know, unnecessary paperwork. Make it go uh, away. Yeah, make it go away. And so... Um, <laughs> Actually, not long after Scalia left, the Department of Labor under um, Elaine Chao went ahead and did away with it. But it was just, you know, to me, it was just jaw dropping because we think of Trump as this like ridiculous crony capitalist who will, you know, basically troll the universe with his picks for various offices. Like, of course, you're going to pick Betsy DeVos, who hates public education, to be (laughs) Department of, uh, of Education. Uh, but tr- uh, what Bush did in this case in putting Scalia there was ju- it was like Trump did it. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. jaw dropping. His father hands you the presidency. I should add that his lawyer in Bush v. Gore was a colleague at Scalia Jr.'s law firm. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so he, you know, he put Scalia uh, on this task after rewarding him by undoing the um, ergonomic standard and then, you know, basically puts his office in control of this, this counting rule. And so in 2001, no, it was actually later than that. 2002, this, this rule, this um, category falls off the books. And so now there's no musculoskeletal, there's no ergonomic and the industry figures out. And several people told me this uh, Berkowitz of the national labor, um, National Employment Law Program, um, also Human Rights Watch, did a scathing report on the U.S. meat industry. And they made this point, too, that the industry said, well, since we don't really have to break these injuries out, what if we just sort of stop counting them? Mm-hmm. And so what you see um, throughout the, the, you know, since 2002, you see this really nice drop in the injury rate at... Um, at these meat processing plants. You think, oh my God, they're making progress. Um, <laughs> when in reality, it's the exact opposite. They just right. literally stopped counting this stuff. Wow. Um, and, you know, to talk to Berkowitz, they had actually been making, pro- you know, when they figured OSHA was serious, they were like, okay, well, we got to deal with this. Like we got to, you know, we've got to play ball on this. And then, you know, basically when, you know, between Bush's machinations and Scalia Jr.'s, you know, the younger Scalia's machinations, right? Um, th- they basically took OSHA out of the business of regulating the meat industry in any serious way. And it's just been a disaster for workers ever since. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back and talk a bit about more OSHA, what they're doing now. Uh, so stay tuned and uh, we'll have more from Tom Philpot in just a second.
I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so we're back with Tom Philpott. We're talking about OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as it is known. Um, you describe OSHA in the beginning of your article about the you know, workers in, in processing and poultry processing plants as missing in action. So, But in this actual administration, what kind of a role are they expected to play in any case? I mean, I don't see uh, them being allowed to do their job now any more than they were essentially allowed to do their job under the Bush administration. What could they be doing that they, that they should be? Well, I mean, I think that goes back to um, the, the emergency temporary standard. Like if you had, if you had someone, if you had someone at OSHA who cared and we should um, just uh, briefly point out that there's not an OSHA director. Uh, This is a position that I I, I think in the entire Trump administration has never officially been uh, filled. There is a, a woman whose name is escaping me, who's the acting director, but she's never been approved by, by Congress. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, you know, it's an unmanned uh, uh, vehicle in, in yeah. a lot of ways. And, um, but yeah, so if OSHA was taking its job seriously, if we had a Department of Labor head that was taking its job seriously, then they could put an emergency temporary standard out. But I think to your point, um, you know, what can we expect from OSHA in this um, process? I think that gets to how President Bush declared um, meatpacking, the meatpacking industry, a, um, an essential industry uh, in, in this order um, a couple of months ago. Right, right. President and, Trump, you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. th- what did I say? You said Bush, but that's okay. I'm sorry. Uh, President Trump declared it a, um, a, a essential industry um, yeah. with an um, uh, executive order. And on the day that he uh, released that executive order, he told the reporter for Bloomberg that, oh, I've been talking to Tyson executives and they're worried about liability in their workers. And I've um, I've got something to sort them out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he yeah. m- made it fairly clear that his executive order declaring the meatpacking industry essential was about providing cover to these uh, meat giants from lawsuits from workers Right. Uh, cl- claiming that they were injured on the job uh, with COVID-19 for not being properly protected. And so the thrust of the, in- of the administration has been, you know, let's, um, let's allow the industry to keep producing at full throttle. And in fact, we'll give them cover to produce at full throttle because in this executive order, we'll tell them to. We'll tell them you're essential. We need your, you know, meat for, for our nation. And so produce as much as possible. 
and you know OSHA is going to is going to put out some uh, voluntary rules and follow them the best you can. Um, and so you know the the thrust of the administration has been uh, to keep production going. You know, COVID be damned, and so it would have caused a huge conflict within the indus- within the administration if um, if Scalia ha- you know had pushed back. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that that gets to your point. Like it's been clear from the top that protecting workers in the meatpacking industry is um, is not the priority. The priority, in fact, is to protect executives and shareholders in these companies from you know lost sales due to less production and lawsuits based on workers uh, quite properly saying that they were not protected. Well, are workers uh, actually allowed to sue the company for their failure to be protected? Yeah, so there are some suits coming out. Uh, one suit has already been thrown out. Um, but really? uh, I think we're going to see a, a lot of suits going forward. Um, one interesting wrinkle is that the, um, the OSHA uh, within the Department of Labor, actually the labor solicitor, the woman, I, I don't have her name right, right in front of me, but the woman who has the job that Scalia had for a year under Bush, uh, who's now the labor solicitor, has publicly said that in lawsuits against these companies taken out by workers claiming they were harmed um, by lack of COVID protection, she will defend the companies. She will take the company sides. And that means a lot in court when there's like an amicus brief or a, um, or some or something from, you know, Department of Labor saying, you know, we're on the company side in this. We we buy their logic. She said, if companies can be shown to have tried in good faith to follow these voluntary rules, then we're going to take the company side. And um, and that is kind of insane because, you know, what it's saying is that, you know, if I want to run my line at 175 birds per minute, which is the maximum you know, in chicken, yeah, it is. It's going to be impossible to have social distancing. Correct. Um, and so, if you are, um, if I can say, look, I am following the the administration's executive order to keep production at full throttle. I'm doing my best at social distancing, but it's simply impossible um, because what OSHA said was, you know six feet of distance if possible, um, <laughs> then I am free from, you know, from liability. And that's going to be a powerful uh, argument in court. And uh, OSHA is making that, or the Department of Labor under Scalia is making that explicit, um, which to me is just jaw-dropping. It is jaw-dropping. I mean, this guy, he is supposed to be defending labor. Workers. And of course, he's a 30-year uh, management side labor attorney defending corporations against labor. Yeah, so he's the perfect Trump pick for this. And also, let's just point out that the that the big sticking or one of the big sticking points in uh, trying to pass the Heroes Act low these last few weeks is that the uh, Republican side uh, is demanding that that all employers are safe from liability suits right. or, um, that are emanating from the COVID uh, epidemic. So. Um, you know, it's clear that everybody wants to to uh, to avoid any culpability in protecting their workforce, which is just so breathtaking in and of itself. God, we need a change in this country. Um, yes. What? <laughs> let's talk for a minute about the about the election since we're we're segueing into that. So, uh, 
Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren have gone on record um, with a bill uh, that proposes phasing out large-scale animal agriculture by 2040. Um, how likely do you think, if say Biden is by some miracle elected, is that a non-starter, or will or will other people in uh, in Congress, in the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, go get on board with that? What do you what do you think are the likelihood of that happening? Well, so I think that Biden's got to win, and then the Democrats have to take the House and the Senate. Yes, and I think the, that scenario is possible. I, mean, I think it's you know I, I think it's very possible. Um, anything is possible, um, but <laughs> even in even in that scenario, um, I think that there are lots and lots of Democrats who are you know very tied to the meat industry. They're in yes. states um, where there's a strong uh, meat sector. Um, they get donations from the industry, and um, it's going to be really hard to sway them to a bill that, um, that eliminates, that essentially eliminates the industry. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's going to be a, a big, heavy lift. And the, the way that I see it, I kind of group it under, um, most of the stuff you see, you know, coming out about something like the green new deal, like the green new deal, you know, very, there's a Bernie Sanders platform for it. There's stuff coming out of a group called data for progress. Uh -huh. that tries to put some um, some meat behind the agri... Well, the whole thing, but specifically the agriculture section of it. And I think that all those things and, and the, 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 um, the Cory Booker bill are going to be things that we're going to need to have massive social movements um, to, um, to make happen. We're going to have to see Democrats... You know, first the Republicans have to get kicked, kicked out. Yes. They have to lose power. That that's first and foremost, and then the Democrats are more prone to pressure, and basically what they need to be made uh, aware of is that you know you can't you, you know you, you you can't vote against something like this and then expect to be expect there to be business as usual. We're gonna um, we're gonna have demonstrations in Washington. We're gonna have demonstrations in places like North Carolina and Iowa, where the yeah. industry is really powerful. Yeah. We're gonna make it impossible for you to um, to to vote uh, against it. And I think so. That's a long way of saying that it's very unlikely anytime soon. But I think it's a necessary step to get it out there. And I think that the social movement energy we're seeing now around the movement for Black Lives yeah. um, is just going to have to keep going. And um, if we're going to avoid climate change, I mean, you know, one thing about that bill that I think they, they should push a little harder is that these giant factory farms and their concentration of waste, um, it is a huge source of methane and nit nitrous oxide. Absolutely. And there's no getting around, there's no sort of getting us into a place where we're not cooking at more than two degrees Celsius or two and a half degrees Celsius if we don't rein those things in. So I think it yeah. is a super important bill for a lot of reasons. And um, I think that to see it passed, social movements, that's the only way it's going to pass. Well, we'll see what happens. I think we should uh, get on to teasing your book. Um, because I want to hear more about it and I want people to know that it's coming out like within a couple of weeks, right? It's called Perilous yes. Bounty. It has a subtitle. What's the subtitle? 
The subtitle is It's Perilous Bounty, um, the imminent collapse of American farming or the looming collapse of American farming and what we can do about it. Right. So what can we do about it? <laughs> well, so, so, well, yeah, I mean, I think that basically the answer I just gave is also yeah. the, it, it's really the last chapter of my book. Okay. Um, um, that, you know, basically massive social movements are the only th- thing that's going to get us out of this. And if you're a skeptic on that um, listener out there, then, uh, you know, I think that there's not much to be optimistic about. Uh, yeah. I think that... Um, that is what's going to have to happen. But so what I do in the book is I, I sort of look at the map of U.S. food production. And, mm-hmm. I, and what I see is that the great bulk of our fruits and vegetables come from the West Coast, mainly from the Central Valley of California. Right. A couple of other big valleys in California are highly productive. But the Central Valley is like the sort of the big one. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at meat production, the... A lot of the meat itself, but most importantly, the corn and the soybeans, they come from the Midwest. These yeah. are the corn and soybeans that feed the meat production uh, machine that, you know, sort of fatten the animals that these workers, uh, these um, readily abused workers uh, are now um, dealing with. That's driven by this massive production. And as I, I think I show pretty definitively sort of structural overproduction of these crops. Mm-hmm. Um, those, that all happens in the Corn Belt, sort of the states clustered around Iowa. Um, and um, what I do in the book is I go through those regions one by one and show that they're in a state of ecological decline um, that is getting pretty damn scary and is accelerated by climate change. Also sure. helps accelerate climate change itself. But, you know, the real scary part is that they, you know, the reason why, one of the reasons why it's called Perilous Bounty is that this food production system that we have is undermining the ecological base, basis for food production in the two most important areas. In California, they're way overusing water. They're using yep. water, you know, faster than it's, than it's available. Um, and that means the depletion of aquifers and that, um, you know, foretells all sorts of problems going forward. And in the Midwest, they're, you know, they're basically abusing the soil to the point where soil is being lost at many times the rate of um, sort of natural soil production. Yes. And, um, and what that means is the Midwest has got this incredible store of topsoil. And as we just sort of hemorrhage it away, we're going to see less and less productive far- farming. We're going to see more and more need for inputs like fertilizers and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and in both cases, climate change is a key driver. In the, you know, in the California region, the, the snowpack of the Sierra Nevada, which is the water resource that drives the whole machine, yeah. um, it has it fallen you know, palpably in the last 15, 20 years. Um, you know, even putting droughts aside, you're seeing a downward trend in snowpacks. Um, and um, there are climate models by really, really great climate scientists that suggest a near zero snowpack, you know, starting in the you know, middle of the century, just trending down to zero. Yeah. Um, and um, it's really scary to have all of your, you know, your entire fruit and vegetable production complex tied to an area like that. Um, 
So, and then in the Midwest, the, you know, as you know, well, Katie, when you grow corn and soybeans, you, you know, you're basically leaving them uncovered from harvest time in October, November until a crop is established and sort of holding soil in um, sometime in the late spring, early summer. Yeah. So you've got this mo- these many months of just bare ground and you get these um, huge storms uh, blazing through the area in, let's say, April and May. And when that happens, just amazing amounts, jaw-dropping amounts of soil just goes on the move, um, leaves the farms, goes into streams, um, ultimately lakes, um, Gulf sure. of Mexico, bringing with it all of these agrochemicals that are causing all these problems. And um, and neither of these systems can can go on forever. And I think that you know we talk, you could talk about time frame. Not forever is getting tighter and tighter as climate change just accelerates Accelerates, right yeah so so that's basically my book and it's um it's definitely some a little bit of light pandemic reading uh, for anyone wanting to feel hopeful (laughs) (laughs) always with the good timing over here um yeah yeah i can't wait to read it (laughs) well tom thank you so much for joining me today it's always a joy um we'll arrange uh off the air for uh me to a get a copy of the book and then a, another date for you to talk about it so definitely to reading it thanks a lot for your wonderful time today. thanks for all the great work you're doing at mother jones Swear thank you God. so much i don't know people wouldn't know anything without you and people like you know leah douglas we just we would all be walking around in the dark anyway leah douglas is a hero no, she no is well you that. too you you paved the way baby So um, thanks to my engineer. Thanks to my sponsor. And I'll see you next week for another great show. We don't know what it is yet, but, you know, it'll happen. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, folks. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.